Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show is also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, October 1st. 2023 can you believe it is already october dear listeners that means the firearms deer opener is just over a month away Uh, we are in the heart of a lot of great outdoor opportunities small game seasons archery deer seasons already well underway Uh, in fact in just a moment here we're going to talk with a gentleman who down in fillmore county on the archery opener took one of the biggest deer that will probably be taken all year it's got the potential to be a record book buck a boone and crockett deer This week, I will also have an interview with Joe Albert, longtime friend of mine and outdoors writer in the state, who now works for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources in the Enforcement Division as its communications coordinator. We're going to talk to him about the state's five canine units. Yeah, those are the dogs that work with uh, some of the conservation officers out there afield, and they help conservation officers in a number of ways. We'll also have Tony Peterson with us. Tony, hardcore deer hunter. I've enjoyed watching his career blossom over the past couple decades. One of the best deer hunting outdoor riders in the country. Uh, We will chat with him about some early archery deer season tactics. As I mentioned, we are in the heart of that season right now. Hey, I want to spend a few minutes now checking in with a gentleman who took uh, one of the biggest bucks that we have seen so far, uh, yet this fairly young archery deer season. The deer season's only been two weeks old. But we featured it in this week's print version of Outdoor News. We also have it on our website. Beautiful buck taken by a gentleman from Rochester named Leroy Purrier. And he joins us now. Leroy, it looks like you got yourself a booner. And you've really put in a lot of time to uh, to keep tabs on this deer. It's nice to see a guy like you working so hard and and, uh, and the work paying off. Congratulations. I appreciate that, Rob. Yeah, he looks like uh, he's probably going to net boon. I mean, he grows uh, just right around 180. We haven't had him officially scored yet, but after the drying time, I... I would imagine hope that he's probably going to make Boone. Boone is 170, correct? And correct. Uh, the, the dry down period, 60 days? Yes. It's an 11 pointer, correct? So you're you're going to have him scored as a typical. Does that extra point, does that have to be deducted? Yeah, I think that's going to be deducted, I would imagine. Um, then he has one burr on uh, his left base that's just over an inch. That's probably going to have to okay. be deducted as well. But so. that's not a lot. You know, that's, that's not a terrible not a deduction. Yeah. Okay. You were hunting on some property you own uh, in Fillmore County and uh, kind of in the Lanesboro vicinity, and you haven't owned the property very long. Tell us about that process. No, I actually uh, stumbled across property, kind of just one of those things. I was on, getting ready to go to bed, just seeing what's on there, and uh, happened to see a listing that was posted on Facebook by a friend of mine, Chad Darteski, and uh, looked like an NRS piece of property, so I gave Chad a call. And we went down and looked at it probably four or five days later, I suppose, and uh, it, it ended up being something that we're pretty pretty interested in. Didn't know a whole lot about it at the time, but we, we knew there was a couple decent bucks roaming on the property. So we ended up uh, making an offer and bought the property in January. And within, oh, I would say, three weeks of owning the property, um, myself and uh, two of my friends, Chad Garteski and Joe Brown, went down looking uh, for the sheds off that deer. We happened to find both of them on our first So you were, looking for the, you were looking for the sheds of the deer shortly after you bought it. How were you aware of the deer so quickly? Did you immediately put trail cameras out, or what, did. did it did it have a reputation in the area? So I did put trail cameras out instantly the day that I bought the property. 
and then the uh, original landowner had had some pictures of it in, oh. in velvet, so we knew there's there's a good one around there. I don't know, I probably four or five different cell cameras in different areas, and kind of within just a couple of weeks, we were able to kind of pattern where he was traveling back and forth on that property, and uh, he one one evening showed up with only one horn, and uh, two days later he showed up with nothing, so we knew okay. they were on the ground, so we just put the boots down and tried to find them. You found the sheds, and there's a great picture of you with the buck that you put that you took uh, with a crossbow first day of the archery season, September 16th. Uh, yep. And you had the sheds right in front. That's that's pretty cool. It, you you were you using those antlers to rattle at all this season? No, 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 not at all. So you've been monitoring this deer. You've got it looks like you work really hard. To you've got uh, I got a pond out there. You've got food plots. And did he stick to your property pretty well, or were other landowners seeing him, uh, adjacent landowners seeing him on their spreads too? So, yeah, he has been seen on uh, a prop, one property I know to the west of me, um, for sure. That landowner had seen him, and then another landowner to the east of me, probably a quarter mile or so, had had uh, photos of him from previous years. I don't know that he had them this year, but he did have pictures of him from the previous years. How long have you been deer hunting, Leroy? Uh, didn't really get real serious about hunting. You know, big bucks, mature bucks, until I was probably, oh, I don't know, probably late 20s, I suppose. Uh-huh. Started, started uh-huh. getting a little more serious about it. Well, it's a, it's truly a lifestyle for you, it looks like. I mean, the, the time you invest in the property and, and trail cameras and, and managing your property for, you know, not just big deer, I presume, but it, it benefits all wildlife, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, so well, that's you, kind of the you, idea, really, Rob. Yeah, I mean, what we do isn't necessarily just to, to harvest big, mature bucks. Yeah, it definitely helps keep them in the area keeps them healthier but i mean the grand scheme of things we're just trying to provide you know a safe place and some good nutrition for the does the fawns turkeys i mean anything that's around there uh you're going to have the buck at the deer and turkey classic is that what i understand next uh next march yeah that's the plan we're hoping uh-huh. i should be able to get him done with tax service by then and yeah i'd like to like to have him on display up there for sure Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure people would love the opportunity to see it. You took it with a crossbow. It sounded like you were a crossbow hunter yeah, even before it was uh, legalized uh, for for all archers this year. Something you've been using for several years? I started with a crossbow um, actually, let's see, two years ago is when I actually okay. started using a crossbow. Uh-huh. So I had uh, I had an accident, uh, well, it be five years ago on October 4th. I fell taking down a tree stand. Um, ended up with a incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, so I uh, spent about about six weeks or so in the hospital. Kind of kind of switched over to the crossbow just so I can continue, you know, somewhat of an archery hunting uh-huh. passion. You know, yeah. Well, that's but, great. Uh, yeah, it definitely got... uh, definitely makes things different. That's great. You've got that opportunity. And well, congratulations on your hard work. Beautiful buck. It's on the front of this week's print version of Outdoor News. Uh, looking forward to, to seeing the final mount and and good luck hunting future years, Leroy. I'm sure you're going to be at it for uh, for many years to come. I certainly hope so. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. Leroy Prayer from Rochester took a massive buck, a gross a typical score, a gross score of 180. It looks like it's probably going to qualify as a typical Boone and Crockett buck. Uh, so check that out. We appreciate Leroy joining us for a few minutes. Let's get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this warm Sunday, October 1st, 2023. I am Rob Jerisline, the host here every Sunday evening, and I appreciate folks tuning in, perhaps on their drive home from a lake cabin, or better yet, some early fall hunting and fishing. Hey, I want to check in now with an old friend. 
old co-worker Joe Albert, now the Enforcement Division Communications Coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Joe, a busy man with kids and an active career. How are you doing, old friend? I'm doing really well. How are you? Good, yeah. I'm, I'm keeping busy myself, staying out of trouble. No time for trouble. Well, you know, that's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, hey, you uh, you had a little media soiree earlier this week. Uh, young Brian Mosey from Outdoor News got up there and visited with you. The uh, DNR Enforcement Division kind of displayed some of the uh, the techniques, training techniques for their canine units. It's, it's always a fun topic. Everybody likes dogs, don't they? Everybody loves dogs. And we've got we've got five of them who are really, really fun to watch and very lovable, if I do say so myself. So the five canine units, they're all German Shepherds, correct? Well, we've got one Black Lab, one oh. Black Lab mix, and then three that are kind of the German Shepherd, Belgian, Malinois. I'll be darned. I did not realize that. I thought they were all shepherds. Okay. So I've I've seen some of the shepherds around, and I've seen them work before. One of your DNR officers had one at the Northwest Sports Show uh, yep. probably every year. My daughter is just loves dogs, and uh, you know, I'm, I always tell her to be careful about dogs. But she really enjoyed meeting, I forget which one it was, Joe, at, at the Northwest Sports Show. And that dog was just Super well behaved. I, I guess that's part of the training, right? These dogs are out interacting with the public all the time. They're not, <laughs> they're not aggressive attack dogs, right? No, they're generally very good. I mean, we have three of them are trained, you know, to do the officer protection stuff, but they're very good dogs. They, you know, they live with families and that sort of thing. So they're they're very good natured. So yeah, we've got the the actually the two labs are our newest ones, and they just came through the the St. Paul Police Canine Academy this year or so. They're just going into their first fall hunting season now. What are the names of those two labs? That's Bolt and Jet. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, young Brian Mosey's story uh, mentioned their names uh, repeatedly. Uh, what's interesting is I think a lot of folks associate law enforcement dogs with tracking suspects, but you've got these dogs trained to do a lot of different things, uh, tracking potentially dead or downed wild game. And what, what's really interesting is like zebra mussels, right? Aquatic invasive species. Yeah, so three of them are trained for the the zebra mussels, um, and it's amazing to watch them work around a boat. You know, if there's a zebra mussel on there, they find it in very short order. And then, you know, they're all trained for the game detection. So, you know, if somebody's walking on the trail and sees a CO and, you know, tosses a grouse in the woods, they can go find that. Firearms detection, which is something they use a lot working with other agencies, you know, especially out state where these, you know, sheriff's offices, police departments don't have that kind of capability. You know, they can sniff out a gun very quickly. They find lost people. And then this time of year, one of the big things is shell casings. You know, when people shooting off the road or, you know, potentially making an illegal shot onto private land, something like that, they can find the shell casings. Now, I think a lot of folks listening might be amazed by some of what you just said, and including myself. Uh, the the shell casing, uh, the shell casing seems like that maybe makes a little more sense for a dog to find. I mean, gunpowder uh, in, a, in a, a recently spent shell is a pretty strong odor, but to to find a, a firearm, I mean, what is it? Is it the oil? You know, guns usually have a lot of oil on them. Is that how they're able to to scent out a gun? I mean. A gun's made of steel. It's amazing that they can they can sniff that out. That's probably part of it. And I don't know all the nuances, but apparently guns are one of the easiest things for them to find <laughs> in the smell. I mean, this the, you know, this training you were talking about that Brian Mosey was at earlier this week, 
they, there was a firearm on the side of the trail and the dog from a quarter mile away basically walked right to it or ran right to it. That was the easy one to find. And then there was a grouse across the trail in some cattails. And that was the harder one to find. Joe, how long has the canine program been around with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources? And, and is the plan to keep it going? Yeah. So we started it sometime in the mid, like 1990s. And it kind of, we had one or two dogs for a while. Now we've kind of settled into about five or six dogs and we have five right now. Part of it was because zebra mussels and, you know, detecting those, that's really, you know, we've got three of the five that are trained to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, and the dogs, are they're so effective at kind of being a, you call them a force multiplier, but a human looking for a shotgun shell in a mile long stretch of road that takes a lot of time if you ever find it, whereas the dogs can find it really quickly. And so it's a, it's a program that makes, you know, enforcement officers more effective and yeah, I think, you know, it's something that'll probably, it has been growing and I do anticipate it will continue to grow. I love that term force multiplier. Hey, you look at a dog's head, it's three quarters nose, right? They've got skills that we simply do not have. Mm-hmm. And if we can employ those, then by all means. And and I got to think, yeah, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort that goes into one of these uh, canines, but it's a heck of a lot less than a human officer, correct? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, they can find things in minutes that, you know, it would take a human hours or they would never find it. And, you know, another thing, too, is they are trained, you know, they can locate lost hunters and lost people. And we've done that before. And so, you know, whether you spend, you know, if you spend 5000 or $10,000 on a dog, bringing a lost person back to their family is, you know, I mean, that makes it all worth it, even if it's just one person. Absolutely. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Jerislein with you here. We're chatting with Joe Albert. He's the communications coordinator from the DNR Enforcement Division. We're talking about the canine unit program. Tell us a little bit about how a dog gets into this program. Are there specific sources? Is there breeding, I presume, for dogs for this type of uh, work, for these type of duties? Yeah, so you see a lot of the dogs that we have, they come from Eastern Europe, and they're working dogs. You know, that's that's how they're bred. You know, they're born to be working dogs and we get them. And, but you know, at the time we get them, they're basically the canine unit coordinator, Phil Mose, you know, calls them basically a Tasmanian devil on the end of a leash. They don't know how to sit. They don't know how to you know respond to any commands. Are they pups, Joe? Or are they, how old are they? No, they're, they're a year or two old. Okay. But you know, and it's amazing to watch after, you know, 16 weeks of training you know, that's, and that's kind of the intensive training to start with. And there's obviously ongoing maintenance training that happens every day, but these dogs, they put my dog to shame for example. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, their handler says sit or drop or whatever it is that, that they say, and these dogs respond immediately. And it's a, what is it? A 16 week training program. Is that what uh, I think Brian's story said? And it's with uh, a St. Paul, there's like a, a dog training Academy over there. Yeah, so the St. Paul Police Department has a canine, basically, they do a canine training. And so these dogs go there, well, the dogs and their handlers, for 12 to 16 weeks and go through that. Uh, and then they're, you know, basically certified to work in the field. And then there's these ongoing trainings. So our canine unit gets together for two days every month and works together. And then they have to do individually at least 16 hours a month. But, you know, all of the handlers, I think, you know, they work every day with the dogs keep them sharp. 
So that's minimum 16 hours a month for the duration of their canine career. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think people will be glad to know that, that it's not like this training, you know, just stops after, uh, after doggy Academy. No. And you know, they've, yeah, they, they, and they always have to be doing something different too. Cause, you know, you can't condition the dogs to search for something for 10 minutes. Cause if they're out in the wild and searching, you know, 10 minutes is up and they're like, eh, no, I'm not going to find it. So they've always got to be working them and they do a really good job. It's, it's truly amazing to watch. The working career of these dogs is what, uh, seven, eight, nine years? How long does that go, Joe? And then what happens after, uh, after they're done working? Yeah, it's, you know, seven, probably seven to 10 years. And then once they're done working, they go and live with the handlers and their families, you know, because that's, that's where they've spent their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, they live with them and just, you know, kind of go off into retirement that way. If someone out there is listening, they're out hunting and fishing, they encounter a conservation officer with a canine unit, how should they behave? Should there be different expectations? Are they being investigated for something different than they perhaps normally would by a seal without a dog? I would certainly act the way you normally would. If you talk to the officers, people will generally act better. Yeah. <laughs> um, because a even if they're not doing something wrong, people are just, they're drawn to dogs. Everybody mm-hmm. loves dogs. And the the canines are no different. So yeah, just act the way you always would. Most of these dogs, well, I would say all of them are very friendly and I wouldn't walk right up to them and you know start petting them and that sort of thing. But you can certainly do that if you ask. Mm-hmm. Like any dog. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had these dogs out at the state fair and, you know, one of the, I think, highlights for a lot of people is at the end of the presentation where they're able to, you know, get next to the dog and take pictures and pet it on the head and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Joe, uh, hey, it's a, it's a very interesting aspect of DNR enforcement. Like I say, my uh, interactivity with, with the units has been very positive over the years and it'll be fun to, I guess, monitor this program going forward. Thanks a lot for spending a segment with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, like I say, uh, Brian Mosey wrote a story about it, and I suspect there's other media also reporting on this. Uh, have a great week ahead, Joe. Thanks. You too, Rob. It's our friend Joe Albert from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Enforcement Division talking about the agency's canine program. Let's get in a break. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline, managing editor and publisher of the Outdoor News Publications. Check us out at OutdoorNews.com. Can you believe it is already October, Sunday, October 1st, 2023, the heart of autumn, a warm weekend again, but hearing about a lot of great things going on out of doors. Hey, as promised, I mentioned earlier our friend Tony Peterson was going to be with us. I feel bad that I didn't have Tony with us maybe a couple weeks ago on the eve of the archery deer hunting season because it's now a couple weeks into the season. But uh, that just means he's got some good up-to-date reports for us. Tony, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, you can read Tony at TheMeatEater.com. Uh, that's uh, that's where he's probably most prolific. How uh, how would you rate the opening weekend of uh, the Archer Deer Opener here in Minnesota? Sound like you got out for three four days, and it's been warm, right? Yeah, it's been warm. I I would rate it personally pretty good. Maybe uh, I don't know. I guess maybe like an eight out of ten. Okay. And what uh, factors go into that uh, that rating for you? Man, I had so I hunted four days in southeastern Minnesota. Saw a deer every day. Had lots okay. of good encounters. Killed a good buck on day four. Nice. Uh, so just just enjoyable, you know. The early season stuff is it's just fun because it's pretty predictable, and you see a lot of deer, and I, I just I love it. 
So we've got a ridiculously warm weekend here that uh, archers have had to deal with, archers and, and crossbow users. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. Any advice for guys? And it looks like it's finally going to get back to, I wouldn't say cool. Again, I, I would say maybe within striking distance of normal temperatures. I don't know what normal is this time. You're probably high 60s for a high, maybe even a hair lower. So we're, we're going to be getting into that range. What advice would you have for, for hunters still dealing with above average heat, above average temperatures uh, as we get into this first full week of October? Just go hunting. I mean, people... People think that this is this has a big effect on them, and it really doesn't. You know, I mean, we when you look at the deer this time of year, they're transitioning from summer coat to fall coat. You know, they don't hardly have any fat on them. They're they're pretty used to summer temperatures, and they're going to be out there doing their thing. So it's it's kind of a hang up on our part, you know. And I know people have concerns about meat care, yeah. But when you've been traveling, you know, I travel out west a lot and do a lot of those early openers. These kind of temperatures, even though they aren't like ideal, mm-hmm. they don't really bother me a whole lot. You should have a plan to take care of that meat, right? You need. I think there's this theory that well, you get the deer gut and you go hang it as long as it's reasonably cool. You want that deer, you want that meat really cool, don't you? Yeah, I always, you know, get them get them gutted as quickly as possible and get that chest cavity stuffed with ice and pay attention to the. You know, the rear hams, because that's thick, and then pay attention to the you know kind of shoulder neck area that's pretty thick, too. But they're not, if you get ice on the inside and the outside, they're not that hard to cool off pretty quickly. But I bet a lot of guys out there do not bring ice with them when they're hunting. And you keep, I presume you keep it cooler with ice with you pretty much all the time? Uh, it depends where I am. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm in southeastern Minnesota and there's a whole bunch of towns within, sure. you know, then I'll just go buy ice. If I'm... You know, heading out west and my whitetail hunt might coincide with some elk hunting or something where people might really clean out an entire town of ice, mm. which I've seen. Yeah. Then it's a different story. Then uh-huh. then you gotta think about it. But if you I mean if you can get to a gas station you're you're doing just fine. It's sure. just it it's a matter of you know, I don't I don't really even hang deer anymore. I don't I you know, I grew up doing that and now my whole thing is if I shoot them, I get them on ice and by the next day I'm cutting them up. You know, getting them in a cooler at the very least. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I think people need to hear that from a, a real seasoned deer hunter like yourself. Okay, so get out hunting, obviously. Uh, food sources, big acorn mast year. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Are you seeing that across the Minnesota and Wisconsin? Buddy, that is accurate. You know, I, I kind of had a plan based around hunting some soybeans, uh, at least in Minnesota, and acorns were a an enormous factor with every deer I saw just about like it was, it was playing into everything. And I think, you know, a lot of the acorns been dropping for a long time now, it feels. And I kind of thought, man, we'll be cleaned up. Things will be, you know, they won't have that option. And it was, that was not the case for me. Almost every deer I saw was even the deer that came into the beans were hanging on the edge and you'd see them picking acorns off the, off the dirt there in the field. Tony, you've been deer hunting a long time. What do you think influences the size of the acorn mast? I know if I talked to Stan Tequila, he would say, in regard to like crab apples, that if it's a droughty year and trees are stressed, they'll actually really boost their production of berries because they've evolved to you know really push reproduction in those tough conditions. Is that what you think maybe went on this year? We had a drought, and that stimulated these oak trees to really produce a huge mast or is it more a factor well there was good pollination in the spring and good pollination put conditions and that's why we've got this big acorn mast like i say you've been watching for decades what do you think influences it man i don't 
I really don't know the drought thing, you know, cause you, it seems counterintuitive. You yeah. would think if they're stressed, they're going to uh-huh. go the other way, right? Right. but you do see this a lot. And you know, I don't, I'm a little hesitant to say, but like, I feel like this year, the soft mass, the apples, the berries, wild grapes, everything was just like boom year. Like uh-huh. just like, there's so much food out there. And then the acorn thing, it's just off the charts. So it might be just tied to the, the drought situation. I don't know. I don't think people realize just how important acorns are to a lot of wildlife. I, I think Stan, in a recent column he wrote about acorns, said that uh, they can comprise up to 25% of a deer's caloric intake over the course of a year. That's a lot. That's a big chunk. And in a year like this, you almost got to wonder if it's even more. Man, I, I think so. And I, I'll tell you if, you, if you don't believe that, go bait some bears around oak trees when the oak trees are dropping. You'll be so frustrated. I mean, you can put out, you know, I, this year, my daughter and I drew over in Wisconsin and a I, bear tag. Know, yep. And so I have bolt cashews, bolt goldfish crackers, pop tarts, cookies, candy corn, like you name it. And I can't compete with the acorns. The bears are there, but that food source is just that important to them that they will actually ignore that bait site for days, come in, eat a little bit. And it's like, and I know once they get those acorns cleaned up, they'll be all over those bait sites. But it's just, it's kind of like, kind of highlights how important that food source is. Scott Bestel wrote a piece about acorns in this week's print edition of Outdoor News. Tony, it's available at outdoornews.com also. Where, you know, another seasoned Southeast hunter like yourself who's watched a lot of uh, wildlife scarf up acorns over the years. And he said, you know, he's seen some trees, they look identical, they'll drop. You know, the same amount of acorns a year, and the deer and other wildlife will focus on just one of them. And then later in the season, they'll come and eat those other acorns. And he chalks it up to taste. Do you think there's something to that? I I haven't eaten a lot of acorns, Tony. I guess I can't speak to taste. But even within the red oaks, it doesn't have to be a white oak versus a red oak thing. You think sometimes there's just different tannin loads, that sort of thing, that affects the taste of these acorns? 100%. Yeah. I mean, because I've seen the same thing. And, you know, it's easy to differentiate between the the white oaks and the red oaks, you know, see when they concentrate on those and depending on where you're at. But when they have an abundance of acorns and, you know, the white oaks are dropping like crazy, you will see them favor a tree. And there's probably so much going on there as far as like micronutrients and like the tannin load, like you said, that they are pretty keyed into the tastiest ones. Is it generally true that they're going to prefer white oaks first because there are fewer tannins in those that you see white oaks this time of year being the primary food source? I mean, if you can find a good white oak that's got a lot of acorns, great place to set up a stand. And then later in the year, when those white oak acorns are gone, then you get into the mid-season, the rut time, that's the red oaks become more dominant food source. Is that accurate? For sure. I actually see, I mean, it's, it's entirely dependent on how much other food they have, like how egg heavy is it. But if you're in the, you know, the Southern part of the state, I'll see them clean up white oaks as soon as they fall and really not touch red oaks a whole lot until like December. And then you'll see them start to dig through the snow and, and get after the, those acorns. But I think, you know, if you were in, you know, central Minnesota, that might be a different story or, you know, a little bit farther north. But where they have a lot of options, that's exactly what happens. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Jerusalem with our friend Tony Peterson, hardcore bow hunter, hardcore archer, uh, talking about acorns and uh, the big mast year we've had this year. Hey, as long as we're talking about weather and drought and how that's affected things like acorn mass, are you, are you 
focusing on water sources this time of year too. I got to think water sources tend to be concentrated. Does that influence you know deer concentrations too? Yeah, I'm a big water source hunter. I like. I th- I think water is like my most consistent thing for being around deer. You know, food sources vary so much. They browse so much. You know, a lot of that mass is here today, gone tomorrow. And people just focus on, you know, it's like hunting pressure is often centered around food. You know, it's pretty easy to identify that bean field, right? Or But wa- like little hidden water sources, man, that is, that's the ticket a lot of times. So I, I spend a lot of time looking for those and hunting around them. Especially, I got again in a drought year, and and that recent rain did that. Uh, you know, we had what anywhere from two to five inches across the state. Did that alter that strategy a little bit? Are there more water sources out there, or did the ground uh, pretty much soak that all up? I'm hearing a little bit of both. I didn't see a lot of changes in some of the water sources I pay attention to because mm-hmm. I'm also, you know, like I'm I'm getting ready to do a little bit of small water duck hunting. Yeah, I, I think we were so far behind yep. that it wasn't like. It wasn't like what you'd expect if you get, you know, three, four, five inches in a short period of time. Like, a lot of it just disappeared. Yeah, it got uh, absorbed by the landscape pretty fast, and and that's a good thing. Tony, thanks a lot for calling in, giving us a nice thorough uh, report there on what you're seeing on the landscape and how that's going to help or hinder uh, archery deer hunters uh, for the uh, the of the fall. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's our old friend Tony Peterson. Stick around. More of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, October 1st, 2023. I am Rob Jerislein. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you to Joe Albert and Tony Peterson, who were with us for a couple segments. We also had Leroy Purrier, a gentleman who took a big old buck down in Fillmore County. Looks like it's going to make the Boone and Crockett record book, so congratulations to him. A couple news topics I thought I would flesh out before we run out of time this week. Uh, for one thing, last weekend's duck opener. Folks, I've been an outdoor scribe in this state since 1992. 31 years total, and I have never heard a more positive report about the waterfall opener in the state of Minnesota than I heard last weekend. Steve Kortz, who was the Minnesota DNR's waterfall specialist, called it a hunting bonanza. Uh, We called around the state at Outdoor News. Tori McCormick did a great story for the newspaper, and it was positive almost everywhere. I think Laquaparle wasn't super great, but it was certainly above average, but almost everywhere across Minnesota. The average number of ducks per hunter was up, and I talked to a number of hunters personally who had just fantastic mornings. A gentleman in my office went out with three other guys. They had all their birds within an hour, so 24 birds between them within one hour. A lot of teal out there still because we haven't had a frost. It hasn't been cold yet, so a lot of guys are enjoying great bluing teal hunting. Still a lot of wood ducks around. And I'll tell you what, if you're listening this coming week, the next few days are still going to be really good if you can get out in a marsh. Pressure drops tremendously after the season's first nine days. Something like 50% of waterfall harvest in Minnesota occurs during the first nine days, which encompasses those first two weekends. Teal don't like cold. That's why they're early migrators. So really, the stars are aligning. A lot of the pressure is off now, and the teal should still be here early this coming week. The weather's going to get real finally next weekend. It looks like we might actually have below normal temperatures next weekend. So those teal are going to finally blow out of here. If we get a frost, we get cold temperatures, those teal are gone. So enjoy this incredible early season duck hunting while we still got it. And I know I'm harping on this and I sound really extra excited, but there was another point in Tori's story. Minnesota sold 61,500 duck stamps so far this season. 
Those are folks you got to buy that stamp to go hunt waterfowl. That's down 2.6% from 2021, and it's the fewest number sold, at least at this point in the season, since 1977. Those numbers have been declining gradually because waterfowl hunting hasn't been real good. It's gradually been declining. Well, it's pretty darn good out there this year, folks. So, I mean, I would love to see new young people. If you want to go get a taste of quality waterfowl hunting and get into a great sport, this is the year to do it. Let's turn around those duck stamp sales numbers uh, here in 2023 and see if we can create a new generation of, of waterfowlers. This drought that we've been ranting about, one silver lining to a drought like this is that it, it dries out some of these peripheral wetlands and it settles the sediments and you get better aquatic vegetation growth. Well, that aquatic vegetation, another name for that is duck food. And that might be playing a little bit of a role in why these birds are hanging in Minnesota and providing good hunting deep into the season. There's, a, there's more aquatic vegetation as a result of the drought. Next year, even if it's a wet year, probably going to be a pretty good aquatic vegetation year because a lot of that aquatic vegetation produced a lot of seeds. It's probably going to germinate well next year. Yeah, we could have an early frost on September 1st next year that sends all the blue-wing teal to Louisiana. We can't control that. But I do suspect we might have decent habitat conditions again next year. And so I'm encouraging folks, get into waterfowling right now. Enjoy it in 2023. I bet we're going to have a decent little 2024 too. So that is my pitch to get more people involved in waterfowl hunting here in Minnesota. Another quick opportunity, the fall turkey hunting season kicked off as of yesterday, Saturday, September 30th. It runs through October 29th. Hunters can take one bird of either sex. You buy one tag, and you can use it the entire month here, folks. So that's a long season you use with just one simple tag. And I must admit, in all my years, I have never purchased a fall turkey hunting license. But I'm thinking, yeah, one of these years, I need to do that. It'd be cool to bag a turkey uh, just a few weeks before, uh, before Thanksgiving, right? Finally, folks, did you see the flamingos that landed in Lake Michigan? Uh, Dateline, Port Washington, Wisconsin. That's on the Lake Michigan coast, about halfway between the Illinois border and Green Bay. Birders from around the region were flocking there, so to speak, to get pictures of these five flamingos, pink flamingos, that apparently had been blown up there by Hurricane Idalia. Uh, they were seeing some of these other flamingos in Pennsylvania, Indiana, other states. But dear old Wisconsin appears to be as far north and west as these birds were able to travel. And I don't think this is some story you can point and, and yell and scream about global warming. It took an act of God, right, pretty much the hurricane to blow these birds that far north. But I will say they looked really comfortable out there. And that's mildly disturbing to me. I mean, when tropical birds land in Lake Michigan in almost October and they're like, Hey, we can do this. This this is great. I presume they're gone by now, or if not, they will certainly bail south very quickly uh, in the next week to 10 days. If they come back next year, then you might hear me say uh, global warming's got something to do with it. With that, thank you, everybody, for joining me for the past hour. Thank you to our three guests. And everybody, have a great week out of doors. We'll talk to you again seven days from now on WCCO Outdoors.